With the science and our data top of mind, it clearly shows that our risks now are much lower. They're not zero, and we're not fully out of this yet, but I feel confident that we can safely make some further changes. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and that was the voice of Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry, and she made it official yesterday. No more masks in most indoor public settings. The mask mandate expired at midnight last night. It is mask-free Friday now, so you can go ahead, go shopping, go for a pint at the pub, no more mask. Now, some notable exceptions that we're going to tell you about. I've got Dr. Kevin McLeod from Lionsgate Hospital standing by here to discuss. First, have a listen to this. Here is Bonnie Henry making it official yesterday on the mask mandate. Masks will no longer be mandatory in those broad ranges of indoor environments that this order sets out. However, some settings will still require that you wear a mask. For example, for uh, healthcare settings, physicians' offices, patients' contact areas. But most low-risk locations, it will now be an option and no longer a necessity. All right, this is Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking yesterday on the mask mandate being dropped. The COVID passport, the BC vaccine card, also set to be dropped here in the coming weeks. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Kevin McLeod from Lionsgate Hospital. He's seen it all here on the front lines of our healthcare system during this pandemic. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Dr. McLeod, thanks a lot for coming on today. Mike, thanks for having me on. Although, although as this winds down, you're not going to need me anymore, So, which is good, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You've turned into one of my favorite guests, so I think we'll find an excuse to bring, <laughs> bring you back on here. So let me ask you about this, uh, this situation with the mask mandate being dropped like last night, with some exceptions, right? You still got a mask up at the hospital? Is that the deal? Absolutely, right? So, I mean, I think, I think it's pragmatic, right? I mean, we don't need to have masks in every single setting, high-risk settings where there are a lot of people that are immunocompromised, like a hospital, like my office, right? You know, I mean, we're going to keep wearing masks. That's how it should be. Um, you know, I think people, though, need to understand there are going to be people in, you know, restaurants, places that people gather that are immunocompromised, well, those people still may be protecting themselves by wearing a mask. Usually that's going to be an airborne kind of protection mask, one of those like N95s or K95s or, or something like that. You know, and I think we got to give them the, the sort of latitude to do that and not pick on people who, who still do need to wear masks. Because for, for some people, it's, it's becoming a smaller and smaller group of people as we've gotten more and more people vaccinated. But for some people, you know, COVID's still a really big deal. It could really impact their life. And, and, you know, most of us have gotten through this just fine, but not everybody. Yeah, no, I think it's a really important point to make. And it's one that Bonnie Henry uh, made yesterday, just pointing out that, look, some people will still opt to wear the mask. The mask is now optional. Let's have a listen to what she said on that point. Then I'll get uh, some more thoughts from you here. Here's Bonnie Henry speaking yesterday. Some people in some locations will and continue to use masks personally or in their business. And that's okay. We need to support that. We need to recognize that we all have our own risks and our own uh, vulnerabilities. And particularly if you are older, if you're immune compromised, you may still wear a mask in some locations, especially if you're inside or around a large number of people that you don't know. Okay, so Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking there yesterday. Some people will continue to mask up. Do you think most people, though, Dr. McLeod, are ready to throw the mask away when they go shopping or they go oh, to a restaurant? I think so. I think so, right? I mean, I, I think, and, and, and that's not unreasonable, right? I mean, I know people will jump up and down and say, well, it's COVID fatigue. We shouldn't make decisions based on that. But we have to be realistic too, right? Because if people are completely fatigued and burnt out with, with doing this, if there is, God forbid, some other wave in the fall or something like that, we're not going to have the buy-in to, to go back to, to you know restrictions of that for some reason had to happen now i'm not anticipating that happening but you never know right and I, I think we just have to be very reasonable as a society and especially for public health and i think we're seeing that right even with the, the vaccine passport I mean, you know we're seeing these things sort of go away now that there isn't as much of a need for them right and so that vaccine passport the bc vaccine card still in place so you still have to show proof of vaccination to go to a lot of places but Bonnie Henry announcing yesterday that will also be phased out in early 
April. Do you, do you think they should have just dropped that at the same time as the mask mandate? Um, you know, probably. I, I think that some of it's being done for political reasons, if we're really honest about it, um, you know, which is never good, but... but it's still going away in April. It's not that far away. It it did initially have a purpose. I, I really don't think we can make a very strong scientific argument for it to have a purpose now. Its purpose was to get people vaccinated. It worked, right? We we still have seven to eight percent of people who are are not vaccinated, but it's not increasing the uptake. And and I think when people hear about this group of people who haven't gotten vaccinated, it's not a it's not all one type of person in that group. There, there are a fair number of people who, for very legitimate reasons, cannot get vaccinated. You know, you look at the number of people where they had a first dose, but then no second dose, and you think, well, that's weird. Why would that happen? There are people who do have reactions, right? I mean, it's uncommon. I still think for the majority of people, they should get vaccinated. But, you know, there, there are people where they just can't do it, people who have significant immune problems and they can't get vaccinated. So, you know, that, that group of people who's not vaccinated isn't a bunch of people with misspelled signs yelling in Ottawa. It's, it's, a, it's a very diverse group. I think it's a really good point. I'm speaking to Dr. Kevin McLeod from Lionsgate Hospital. One of the things that you said to me in an earlier discussion we had during this pandemic that really struck me at the time was when we take a look at the number of people who had COVID and were sick in the hospital, uh, a lot of that, there were a lot of fears of the, the healthcare system and our hospital system being overwhelmed by people sick with COVID. But you pointed out to me that we were talking about at one point it was like a 5% surge, right? In the number of people in hospital with COVID, 5% of the hospital well, I think, population. I think that, that is a point that's been so missed in all of this, right? Because, yeah. you know, it, give or take, we have about 10,000 beds in British Columbia, right? That's acute medical beds. Right. Um, so there's a smaller number of ICU beds. Um, but, you know, when you look at the numbers of people hospitalized, I think we peaked at 800 and something, you know, that's 8% of the total people in hospital. But, you know, for a lot of time, we sort of had 3 to 4% of all of our patients in BC hospitals being there because of COVID. And yet, I think the public had this idea that, oh, my God, it's every second person, the hospital's full of COVID. We got overwhelmed and we handled it. The system worked, but it was difficult. But we got overwhelmed with like 5% increased volume in in the hospitals. And it it shows you how on the edge the system is. I mean, we had to cancel thousands of surgeries because there was a surge of 5% of people. And I I don't think we've done enough to address that. Um, You know, we certainly haven't done enough. The government's starting to do this, and I got to give them kudos for increasing nursing places and and schools and stuff. But but we need a a good long term vision for for how we don't live on the edge with this, right? It's 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 it was close, (laughs) and it shouldn't be with five percent. We should be able to handle a surge. Can you imagine a business if they had five percent more customers one day and said, "Well, that's it. We're shutting the place down. (laughs) This isn't going to work." You you can't do that, right? Yeah. No, I think it's a great. Point. And maybe that's an opportunity right now to take a look at this, take a look at the capacity of our healthcare system and talk about expanding it. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to decide if that's something we want to we want to spend money on in society. But, you know, one of the problems when you when you run on the edge, you it's, it's people, right? Healthcare is people that are providing a service. Yes, there's buildings and equipment, but it's mostly people. So when you're running on the edge, you're pushing people. And the more you push people, the more they leave. You know, we've seen so many people leave the healthcare system, nurses, doctors. Think of all the family docs that have just said, that's it, I'm out, I can't do this. Because we push them so much to that edge. If you're, if you're constantly pushed, eventually you're, you're going to jump ship and do something else. But then it leaves the people remaining in the system pushed even more. So you, you've got to have a little bit of give. You do need those days. I remember early on in my career, there was a day at Lionsgate once where there was not a single person in the emergency. And that's never happened since. You know, people were rolling around on chairs and just having a good time. And you think, well, that's a bit silly. Why are they? But you, you actually need some days where it's light to make it um, just a more palatable job, right? It, it can't always be running at 110%. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it as always. You got it, Mike. Anytime.
All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the mask mandate being dropped in British Columbia. That happened effective at midnight last night. It's mask-free Friday now, so you can go into a store, a restaurant, pub without your mask on, unless the individual store has their own individual rules. There's some exceptions for where masks continue to be worn for a while, too. All right, getting lots of calls on that in the last segment, and I find it very interesting to hear the spectrum of opinion on this. Getting a lot of calls from people who are saying they're still going to mask up. And I'm getting a lot of emails from listeners uh, during the break as well from people who are saying they're going to continue wearing the mask. And also from uh, people who have been out shopping or whatever this morning and they still see a lot of people wearing their mask. Phone me on the buzz line. Let me know what you're seeing out there, okay? 604-331-BUZZ. Leave me a voicemail there. We may play it later today. 604 331 2899. One of the exceptions to the mask mandate being dropped today is the BC public school system. Uh, masks still required in schools until the end of spring break. Let's check in with Terry Mooring now, president of the BC Teachers Federation. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Terry. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks a lot for being here once again. So, what are the rules in BC schools now? So, you still have to mask up in schools, right? You do. And so the Ministry Steering Committee was really united in uh, describing the need for a transition period for schools. And so that there would be a period of time where schools knew the mask mandate would end, but they'd be able to sort of adjust to that because there's going to be a variety of reactions to this in the school system. And, you know, it's it's already been quite difficult uh, in schools recently. Um, well, during the course of the pandemic, um, you know, with uh, the, the teachers trying to keep everyone safe and feeling like there just aren't adequate measures. So there's it's been really taxing on the school system, taxing on families and taxing on, on teachers and other education workers. Right. So the transition time was important. What we didn't uh, know was going to happen and which we uh, are concerned is going to complicate things in schools is that the mask mandate would be lifted everywhere else with no notice. And so today... Um, you know, schools are all still in session. And so, you know, we called yesterday on families to just remember that the mask mandate is still in place in schools. We're hoping it doesn't cause confusion, but we're concerned it will. And about half the schools are still in session next week as well. And so this is definitely an added complication. The steering committee was hoping that all the mask mandates would be lifted at the same time, just, you know, at spring break so that there'd also be that transition time for families during spring break and and knowing that, you know, when they return to school, there wouldn't be a mask mandate. So part of that came true, (laughs) but we're hoping it's not more complicated for um, folks in schools today. Okay, so kids, teachers, and staff required to be masked up today, and you were concerned about confusion there. Have you received any reports this morning from people showing up saying, hey, I don't have to wear my mask anymore? Well, we know that's going to happen. And, and, you know, quite honestly, there's parts of the province where um, uh, implementing the mask mandate and enforcing the mandate has been extraordinarily uh, taxing and extraordinarily difficult. And so, you know, that's the concern is that, uh, you know, some students will come today saying they don't have to wear masks, and, and uh, in fact, they do. And yeah. so we think it's unnecessary confusion that was caused, and, and that's unfortunate. The other concern, of course, is the very low vaccination rates amongst the 5 to 11-year-olds. Only 30% of the province's uh, elementary-age students uh, are vaccinated. And so, and that's really a lot lower in both northern and interior health. And so we've been calling on both the ministry and the provincial health office to really provide an education campaign for families uh, to really talk about the importance of vaccinating children and to ensure that uh, there's access everywhere. Uh, Whenever there's a really low vaccination rate, like we're seeing amongst 5 to 11-year-olds, there's a variety of factors at play. Okay, speaking of Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation, masks, of course, remain optional. Will that be the case in schools as well, it like if will. a teacher or a kid? Okay. It will, and that's one of the you know more important things that Dr. Henry said yesterday that I really wanted to underline is that uh, mask wearing is a choice that needs to be supported uh, and respected. And so I know that across the province today in classrooms, teachers are talking about the fact that, you know, post-spring break, um, it will be a choice, and, and some students and some teachers will continue to uh, wear masks. 
you know, we need to be respectful of those that have underlying medical conditions or have family members that uh, have underlying conditions. I've spoken to a lot of family families who, you know, have children in school who have grandparents that they still want to see but, you know, have underlying conditions. And so those children will continue to wear masks. And, and so there's, everyone has a story, you know, about, about this, and um, it really needs to be respected. And that's part yeah. of the transition time that we really wanted was to have these conversations and to really, you know, talk about it. We are also calling on districts to supply N95 masks to both children and um, the education workers that need or require them. Um, N95 masks aren't inexpensive, and we don't think that should be a barrier for families who feel that they still need that protection. And N95s become much more important when not everyone in the environment is wearing a mask. We've been through a two-year saga here, and you've expressed concerns throughout the pandemic on safety for teachers, staff, kids in our school system. But, but one thing I, I know you never did was you never called for schools to be shut down. And as a parent with kids in the public school system, I'm grateful that the schools remained largely open through this. And I know that was your position, too. You wanted to see the schools remained open, and they did, which I think is, is great. But I know you had concerns about health, health and safety in the schools. What about the situation now as we drop this mask mandate eventually after spring break? Are you concerned about that? I mean, what are you hearing from teachers? Do they think this is too soon? Well, there, there's, you know, teachers have a variety of reactions, and a lot of it depends on their personal circumstances. And so, you know, some people will be relieved because it's been really difficult, as I stated earlier, in some places to uh, impose that mask mandate. I mean, in other cases, you know, there's going to be a lot of concern, especially, as I was saying, in elementary schools, given the low vaccination rates of, of yeah. children. And so what, you know, we're also um, asking both families, you know, and, and others is to just keep in mind that everyone's going to have a different reaction and to really respect that. Uh, and so, you know, the, the fact is that some people will be very happy and other people will be very anxious. And so in order for us to all, you know, sort of work together, uh, we need, just need to be aware that, um there is going to be that variety of opinions. Yeah. The other is, uh, you know, we're still concerned about school ventilation systems. About half of the ventilation, about half the districts in the province don't have, don't meet the minimum requirements for ventilation systems, and they ought to. Um, our schools ought to have good ventilation systems. And so, you know, we were disappointed that the budget didn't identify specific funding for that. Um, but we are still pushing to ensure that, you know, those long-term projects are completed in schools uh, to repair those ventilation systems. Right. Um, you know, the province did provide money for some of the shorter-term stopgap measures, but long-term, um, that work needs to be done. And speaking of Terry Mooring, president of the Teachers Union, you mentioned the concern around a low vaccine rate for the youngest uh, for young kids, what is your is your point there that you would like to see vaccine clinics set up in schools? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yes. Um, it depends on the community. So there are some communities where vaccine vaccine clinics have been set up in schools. Um, and what you know, what our bottom line is that those vaccine clinics for families need to be convenient and accessible. And so education is one component, accessibility is another. Um, those are extraordinarily low vaccination rates, unfortunately, for fully vaccinated children. And, you know, that will remain a concern until they come up. And, and uh, you know, it's a little bit surprising that they've remained so low. Um, and so we think more effort needs to be put in making sure that kids get vaccinated. Terry, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mike. Okay, welcome back. Let's talk sky-high gas prices now. The pain at the pumps continuing. One price spotted in Metro yesterday, $2.14 a litre. Whoa, this is brutal. Some of these gas prices, some indication they could drop a little bit here. But there's lots of pressure here now to give drivers and businesses some relief. We're already seeing the impacts of this on small business. How is it impacting you? Phone me on the open line right now and let me know. How are these gas prices hitting you, especially if you're running a business and you, you have to get hosed at the gas pump? Phone me right now. Do you think the government should step in? 
cut gas taxes, maybe a rebate check from ICBC would help you out. 604-280-9898 is the number to call me. What prices are you seeing out there? How is it impacting you? 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Just line up some calls here, but first let's check in with Annie Dormuth now, Provincial Affairs Director at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They do an awesome job there representing small business all across Canada. Canada. Hi, Annie. Hi. Always great to be on the show, Mike. Yeah, it's great. To, always great to have you here too. So, let me ask you about small business and gas prices. How is this hitting the bottom line of business right now? Well, this is definitely adding to cost increases that BC small businesses are already seeing. You know, much like everyone across the entire country and throughout the province with inflation, as well as you know, putting an even more pressure on small businesses at a, at a time when they are still, you know, not really looking not really, you know, getting their legs under them for economic recovery and still coming out of this pandemic. So again, all of these cost increases are coming at a worse time for small businesses. Yeah, it's almost like a quadruple whammy, or maybe we're up to like a quintuple whammy now, because you got COVID, you got supply chain, you've got inflation, you got interest rates on the rise. Now you got gas prices. I mean, it just never ends. Well, that's exactly what we're hearing from small businesses. You know, how much more can they possibly take here? You know, two years of a pandemic of low revenue, still only 35% of BC small businesses are back to making normal sales. You know, a strong majority, I'm I'm saying 92% of them say that these rising prices are really having a significant moderate impact to their business right now. So uh, we're calling on all governments, you know, you name it, municipally, federally, provincially, to really start thinking about cost relief for small businesses right now to ensure that they can recover from this pandemic and survive. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about some of that relief that businesses are seeking. So what are you calling on government to do? Like you want the B.C. government to do like Alberta did, cut gas taxes? Yeah, that could be one avenue. We, we are seeing other provinces kind of muse and, and look at such a situation. We saw, for example, an insurance rebate recently up to $100 announced in Saskatchewan. Alberta's reducing gas prices up to $0.13. Cents. Um, they're also doing a $150 rebate on utility prices. So these are just some examples that provincial governments across Canada are looking at, and we do encourage the B.C. government to do the same here to provide some cost relief to small businesses. What, what about the climate change crisis, though? I mean, this is a government that says they have an ambitious climate change agenda, and I'll be shocked if they turn around and say we're going to cut gas prices because, you know, they will continue to point at wildfires, floods, landslides. We've had some terrible impacts of climate change. Your thoughts? Well, definitely, of course. And you ask any BC small businesses, I'm sure they do say that they do care about the environment. However, they also care about the survival of their business right now, which, you know, all these cost increases are putting additional pressure on them and their ability to, you know, really survive and make it through the other end of this pandemic here. So, um, you know, all of these measures that have been announced, for example, the one in Alberta is only a temporary measure. I mean, yeah. this is not permanent that's happening in Alberta. It is temporary, and I'm sure, you know, a three-month retrieval like what is happening, you know, in the neighboring province wouldn't fully, fully hamper well, the uh, province's efforts to to mitigate climate change. Well, well, when you talk about businesses' ability to survive here, Annie, are you suggesting that, what, are there a lot of businesses going bankrupt right now? I mean, we just heard some good economic news on the last newscast there, and unemployment's looking good. Well, unfortunately, there's still 14% of BC small businesses are actively considering claiming bankruptcy or permanently closing uh, because of the pandemic. So yes, there is still quite a few um, businesses out there that are in that very, very fragile position. In addition to that, I mean, on average, BC small businesses have accumulated just over $200,000 worth of COVID-19 related debt. That's the average per BC small business. I mean, that is a staggering number right now. So you know, it, it is good news that we got yesterday from the B.C. government with regards to removing restrictions. Um, however, I mean, you know, the economic recovery is still a distant reality for, bus- for businesses. Annie, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Of course. Anytime. Okay, Annie Dormuth there, Provincial Affairs Director, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Lots of calls coming in here on this. Let's go to them right now. Connie on the line in Abbotsford. Hi, Connie. What do you think? Hi, um, I'm a community health worker, so I don't have the luxury of taking transit or anything, and I see upwards of 12 people a day. Now, our company tries to keep us local in a certain area, but that's just, Abbotsford's a big area. 
So the, these gas prices, they've got to come down. We do get paid a certain amount of kilometers, but yeah. not even close to covering, you know, um, our, our fuel. And, and not to mention just fuel. We have extra car expenses because, you know, um, we have to get more oil changes and more kilometers we put on our car. So it's just they've got to do something. Yeah, so that prices. is money. So those costs are coming right out of your pocket. Absolutely yeah. out of my pocket. Yeah, okay. Thank you for that. No, I've heard a lot of this from different businesses that are dependent on driving their car, whether you're like a, a landscaping company or any other kind of company or contractor, you're driving around town all day long, humping around tools and equipment. You can't go on the bus. I mean, this is like John Horgan said last week. Well, if the gas prices get too high, we'll take the bus park your car. I mean, you can't do that if you're trying to run a small business and you're dependent on, on your vehicle. Jeff in Poco. Hey, Jeff. Hey. So I'm in Poco today, but I'm actually from Chilliwack, and this morning I went to fill up my work van, and it's, uh, one gas station was 2.30. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know, but like I went to another gas station because that one always seems more expensive, and the other one was 198 I don't know why wow. there's such a big price difference there, but I want to touch base here. So my boss has like six vans uh plumbing company right so i'm i'm more on the service side of things so you know i like i still service the valley i've gone out to hope i've gone out to squamish we've gone to whistler we've gone to the sunshine coast right so we put a lot of kilometers on our on our vans right now we hear environmentalists and a lot of people saying well you know it's time to get ev vehicles right now EV vehicles are expensive. Like a few years ago, I have a Dodge Pro Master we bought, and it's cost us sixty grand. Right now, if my boss had to was end up having to buy like six new fleet vehicles, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's just—I don't know how much it would cost. Let's just say, like, you know, they're hard to come by these these vans. So let's just say, you know, nice easy number, like hundred thousand. It's going to cost. It's going to cost think, a I lot. Think it's pretty realistic. Like bottom line yeah. is going to cost a ton. Jeff, thank you for that. You know, for a small business like that to transition to a completely EV fleet of vehicles uh, at a time when we're, we still are looking for improved infrastructure for charging stations. Yeah. I mean, like, that's a ton of money. And like you said, there's short supply of these vehicles too. So many people want them. Mike and Kamloops. Hi, Mike. What do you think? Uh, my question is, why can't, um, the fuel be regulated like why can't the government step in and regulate fuel i just want to know why how come gas in the states is half the price i think don't they regulate the fuel down at the or in the u.s if you can have, okay. answer that question for me thank, thank you mike well the answer is they could step in and regulate fuel prices and it's something that the BC government said they considered doing. There, there is some limited regulation of fuel prices in other provinces in Canada. Uh, but the government said they decided against that. They didn't want to do it. They didn't think it would be effective. Now, what they did instead was they brought in what they call a BC transparency law. So that anytime there's a spike in gas prices, the oil companies are required to explain it to the BC Utilities Commission to prove that they're not hosing the public, they're not gouging people. So this is what Horgan said he would do to solve this problem, bring in a transparency act. Now, at the same time they say that, I heard Farnworth the other day, the Solicitor General, he was asked, why don't you cut gas taxes like they did in Alberta? And he said, oh, if we do that, the gas, the oil companies will just gouge you anyway. They'll just jack up their prices to make up that margin. Well, hang on a sec. I thought you said you passed a transparency law to prevent them from doing that. So now they're saying they would do it anyway. So it's like their law doesn't work. So they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. They're looking for an excuse to tell you for not cutting gas taxes which are the highest in North America. Doug in Surrey. Hi, Doug. Doug, go yeah, ahead. You got 30 seconds. Go ahead. The big petroleum companies that once backed the B.C. liberals, I'm just wondering if they have uh, 
uh, switch their allegiances uh, when they contribute to whoever happens to be in power. Because, uh, you know, when the B.C. Liberals got thrown out, I expected things to be different. But let's face it, with the year the uh, NDP have come through, they need to get money from any source that they can get their hands on. And the big contributors know it. Well, okay, thank you for that. Well, they outlawed corporate contributions in British and B.C. politics now, so that's not going to happen. Thank you for the call. Okay, here we go now with that time of year again. Daylight saving is back. It's this weekend. It's time to change the clocks. Remember, you spring ahead. So set your clocks ahead one hour before you go to bed on Saturday night. You're going to lose one hour of sleep this weekend as we go back to daylight time in British Columbia. Now, a lot of people are sick and tired of the twice-a-year clock change. And we've had a conversation in our province whether we should just scrap the whole thing, go to permanent daylight time in B.C. Hasn't happened, largely because other jurisdictions south of the border, our neighbors, have not taken the lead on it. Now, if you are sick and tired of it, there is a town in northern British Columbia that's leading the way to scrapping the clock change. Have a listen to this report from our contributor, Eric Chapman. Or not to change? That is the question. Get rid of it. (laughs) That's how many British Columbians respond to the idea of stopping our twice-yearly clock reset. Spring forward, fall back. Whether you give it much thought or not, daylight saving time has actually been pretty controversial. It's that time of year again. Like sands through the hourglass, these are the same topics we run into every year and complain about them or complain about complaining about them. But today, we are going to learn about concrete solutions to your daylight saving issues. You know what your problem is? It has been long debated as to why we use daylight saving. Something about the farmers. And we all hear about how it affects our health. We can see significant increases in things like automobile accidents and industrial accidents. Uh, Small but significant increases in things like heart attacks and strokes for a few days right after the time changes. In Ontario, they tried to do it but ran into this. Last year, an Ottawa area MPP championed a bill to end the biannual practice of changing clocks and the legislation has been passed. But the law is contingent on Quebec and New York State following suit because of cross-border trade, stock markets and ties to the federal government. So if we did this without getting Quebec uh, on board, we'd have a really weird situation where, uh, you know, half the federal government workers were on one time and half on another. But really? The city of Lloydminster is on the border of Saskatchewan and Alberta. You have two different provinces with jurisdiction over one city. And we're worried about making an adjustment to something that we adjusted in the first place to get daylight savings. Yeah, time was regular before daylight saving. Then we changed it to daylight saving. So we can take it away. Like candy from a baby. It's really that easy. Like I said, every year the same old conundrum. But I have the solution. It's a two-step process. One come to the realization that time isn't real. It doesn't exist. Two. Just don't change your clocks. I know, crazy, right? Well, people are already doing it. The Richards family in Connecticut, for example, they decided that they would leave their clocks off of daylight saving time all the time, and they're just fine. The father, Scott Richards, says he just uses his day planner on his phone, and it gives him a reminder 15 minutes before meetings. So it doesn't matter what time he sees, he knows he has a meeting. It's really not rocket science. One, zero, all engine running. There's a whole town in northern BC that did it. Well, almost everyone in the town. Atlin. They have no mayor, so they can really just do whatever they want. But what is living in this time warp like? Is the DST free life possible? I called the Atlin Mountain Inn and talked to Sharon about it. (laughs) Okay, um, about two-thirds of us decided not to change our clocks back. Uh, There were some that had to stay, um, like I think the municipal office and so on, but uh, um, the majority of people stayed on Yukon time. 
Really? It's just been a little confusing. Yes. Yeah. Has uh, what, has that made things difficult? Uh, well, well, the medical center stayed on on uh, or changed, so they had to change. So when you get an appointment to go to the doctor, you have to go. Okay, it's not this time of day. It's an hour later. Um, and maybe some of your phone calls in in BC, you'd have to kind of factor factor in the the hour time change. But as far as um, as far as most of the businesses, we actually I think <clears throat> I've heard that there's going to be kind of a lobby that because where we are and the closest place is Whitehorse, that we don't change our time like at all. Yeah, next year. Or this fall. This fall. So I don't know how far that's gone yet, but I do. I do know that there were quite a few businesses talking about that. I think all the local businesses um, uh, have been on the Yukon Time this whole time. Wow! And and did like you the, the restaurants and yeah? Did you as a business? Did you stay on local? You, you personally are you? Which time are you on? We're on Yukon time. You're on yeah, Yukon. We didn't change. And how how were you? Mm-hmm. And you personally, with your business, how did you find it? Were, was it confusing? Or I know you mentioned other people, but just I'm wondering your personal. Uh, actually, not too much. Like yeah. the restaurant uh, people, when people would call, they'd say <laughs> they would say, "Are you on Yukon or BC time?" Uh, but in general, um, the local people all knew that we were on on Yukon time, and so it really wasn't too much of a problem. Oh. Uh, as far as our restaurant went, and I don't think the other one either. Uh, I think you know everybody managed quite well. Yeah, because that's the thing. Everybody, the people seem to really be like, <laughs> "Oh, ever the world will end, <laughs> like the sky's going to fall," but it really doesn't. It's really quite. Do- I no. mean, I mean, you guys are. I, I will admit, and this is a, a, a caveat, of course. You guys are a smaller town. I think like five hundred people. I think I was reading, but still, I think it's a good evidence that this could work. Oh, I think so, definitely. <laughs> uh, actually, I think in the winter time we're down to about uh, maybe three hundred. But uh, people did not like. There were no grumblings or, you know, why are you doing this? Nothing like that at, at all. It was just kind of an acceptance, like, oh well, they have to stay on or they have to change their time. They're on BC time, and the rest of us. Uh, the post office actually oh. went on Yukon time. I think they oh. didn't change. Okay, if I remember rightly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and um, so it, it, it was kind of, I would say, at least two-thirds to three-quarters stayed UConn and didn't change their time. There it is. So no more complaining. Just don't change the hours on your clock. And remember, what you do with your clocks really doesn't matter. Because there never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them. If I could save time in a bottle... <laughs> First thing that I'd like to do is to say... Okay, okay. Uh, awesome report, Eric. I love that Eric Chapman joins me now. I love I love that report. Well done. And that town, man, Atlin, so there's, she said, what, there's around 300 people there in the winter. Some of them are on Yukon time. Some of them are on BC time. That would be, gets yeah. kind of confusing in that town. I don't know. Maybe it, not, know. though. Would it sounds, it, working, it it sounds like it's working for them. Yeah, they're well. They're really close to, like she mentioned. They're it's they're way up north. I was looking on the map, and it, they're really close to the Yukon. So I yeah. think they have a tight relationship. So I mean, if you just <laughs> leave everything there, it would seem to be okay. But the one problem I I keep running into, Mike, is the whole I don't know how to change the time on my iPhone. So <laughs> I, the iPhone automatically changes, right? So right. I don't really have to worry about it anymore. But yeah, I thought it was really interesting. And the Richards family, I found uh, that article online. They live in Connecticut, and mm. yeah, apparently he—they're—they're they're both very—they're all very active. They have three children. They—they they don't change their clocks, and everything's fine with him. He was giggling about it apparently in the interview. So yeah, it's fascinating. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about the move to daylight time that happens this weekend. The clocks spring ahead one hour. Eric Chapman is with me. Lots of phone calls. Tom and Lady Smith. Hi, Tom. What do you think? How are you? Good. Uh, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, one time's good. I don't care which one it is. Pick yeah. one and let's go. Yeah. Okay. Pick one and let's go. Eric, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree, and I I can't get over the, the in my head, Mike, the argument of you know doing time with internationally, and you know we'll have a different time zone than America and stuff like that. Canada has six time zones already. It's six thirty yeah. in Newfoundland all the time, whatever that is, and. 
And so that argument to me is like, well, I don't know. We already deal with that time zone thing here. So would it be that much of a struggle to add one more to the to the six to deal with Seattle? I guess that's a good point, because the argument was we did not want to be on a different time zone from next door in Washington State and, and Oregon. Right. And California. Right, right. But. But we're not. Why don't we treat Alberta the same? Why would we treat yeah. Al- like we're an hour from Dip- Alberta? We d- we don't have a problem with that, you know. Yeah. That's so it's good, interesting. Good point. Let's go to James and White Rock. Hey, James. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. You guys have got to remember, there's two hundred thousand construction workers in British Columbia that work upon the basis of light, and for you guys to set a or for anyone to set a standard time in the winter time. We would have to start an hour later, and we'd have to leave work an hour later. I won't do that. My contractors that I work for won't do that. They want us to work from 7 o'clock or 7.30. So as long as people don't mind me lighting up a job site to the brightness of the sun at 7 o'clock in the morning with halogen work lights, I'm okay with that. Okay, thank you for the call. This gets into the debate about whether we should go to permanent daylight time or permanent standard time because... At one point, there was a suggestion, Eric, we go to permanent daylight time. Well, if you do that, it means you're going to have some very dark mornings. Like on some days, the sun wouldn't come up until like after nine o'clock in the city of Vancouver. So, okay, I don't that that doesn't bother me. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's why I think, you know, if we're going to go to any permanent time, I kind of like the idea of going to permanent standard time. You know, so you don't have kids okay, walking to school if, in the dark. If the, yeah, okay. If the, if there's that, if the, if we're gonna pick one, whatever one works for the construction workers are better, of course, for the population, whatever works best for everybody overall. Yeah. But I feel like there's a way we could pick one. Yeah, for sure. Okay, Danielle on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Danielle. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. I say standard time because it's the normal. Thank you. Going, you don't get anything at all when you go ahead forward. All you get is that you have changed your clocks one hour, but you do not change the position of anything, not the sun, not the earth. So it's a waste of time. Standard is the way to go. Okay, thank you for that. Well, if you daylight time, it gives you more daylight later in the day, right, Eric? Right, right, yeah. yeah. Right. So, I mean, like you said, it, the sun comes up later, but it would be up later. Right. So yeah. So it, gives it you would kind of- even out. I mean, and I mean, we would get used to it. I mean, and like I said, though, too, like there was a time when there was no daylight saving at all. Like, yeah. when did he, I can't, <laughs> I, I tried to find the year. Let me look it up right now while we take another call. Okay. Tony on the line in Maple Ridge. Hi, Tony. Go ahead. Stepping the way it's going to have it getting early three o'clock in the morning in the. Okay, Tony, you're, you're, you're breaking up real bad. I'm going to try and clean up your connection there. Let me go to Brad on the line in Langley. Hi, Brad. Go ahead. Hey there. Yeah, that construction fella had a, had a great point of like daylight hours kind of thing. So I, I'll kind of go with that person for work related. But I love living where we live because just when I get sick of winter, it's spring. And then I get sick of spring and it's summer. And we always have a new season on the horizon. And I like changing my time twice a year. It just gives me more daylight in the summertime. And then it's darker in the winter when you kind of want to get cuddled up and like have it dark. Like it just is that one little change. I get bored of things easily. So I love whatever season is next. (laughs) Whenever somebody asks me, what's your favorite season? It's the next one because I'm bored of the one I'm in. And I like changing up the time too. But, you know, if I worked outdoors, I might be a lot more like that construction worker where, you know, you want it safer and more um, a better suited for working outdoors and not bothering neighbors. Okay. So that's my two cents. Thank you, Brad. Okay, Brad likes mixing it up, Eric. Yeah, I, that's that's great. I didn't realize that. I never thought of the people that do like it. And 1918, when uh, when daylight savings time started, it was a uh, United States that started uh, uh, a bill that was introduced for the seasonal time shift. Martin on the line in Abbotsford. Hi, Martin. Go ahead. Yeah, good morning. Um, I just got a funny story. I came back from a road trip to Alberta, and I overnighted in Creston, and they never changed their, their time time either. And it's because that they are the actually time zone change right there. And so when daylight saving or winter time comes on, they put the sign on one end of the town, and when the time changes again, they put it on the other side. And so they never change their um, their time because they are – Actually, in fact, the uh, time zone change uh, at, their, well, at their place there. They're like in they're like in the mountain mountain time zone, right? Same as Alberta. Uh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, huh. no, it's interesting. Okay, thank you for that. Squeeze in one more. Alex on the line in New West. Hi, Alex. You got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, I think uh, people don't complain when the time falls back. And yeah. if they change it to per daylight yeah. savings times, I can't imagine what the traffic here is stupid to begin with, but can you imagine dark rush hour? All right, here we go now. We're going to talk UFOs now. That music from the X-Files, mandatory whenever we talk about this subject. Unidentified flying objects or, as they were recently reclassified by the Pentagon, UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, which is the preferred descriptor by the U.S. military now. UFOs seem to be taken more seriously in America recently. There was a recent Pentagon report on UFOs. Also, 60 Minutes did an investigation into UFOs observed by U.S. Navy pilots. Okay, what about here in Canada? Well, check this out. Newly released 300-page report obtained by Vice News details more than 500 sightings of UFOs in Canada, including dozens of sightings by the Canadian military. Let's discuss now with my guest, one of the best guests around on this topic, Chris Rutkowski, uh, one of the top UFO experts in Canada. I'm pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming on. No problem. Glad to be here. Okay, Chris, this is uh, interesting stuff. I know you've done a lot of research, a lot of work on this this topic. Can you? What do you know about this report that was obtained by Vice News here on uh, this Canadian report on UFO observations? Is this new stuff for, for you? Uh, actually, it's not completely new, believe it or not. Uh, out of the uh, about 300 uh, pages of documents that was uh, released to Vice, uh, only about 110, 115 uh, are, are actually reports of UFOs. And uh, of those, I would have to say, the vast majority uh, have actually been public before. Uh, okay. In fact, uh, there's, a, there's a government website, uh, Transport Canada, listed almost all of these uh, already for, for many years. So what's it more interesting to me is that uh, in that 300 pages was about uh, a list of 500 uh, incident reports from Transport Canada uh, involving UAP or UFOs. Actually, in Canada, we do call them UFOs according to Transport Canada, but leave the Americans to call it UAPs. <laughs> okay, so these are, so tell me about that now, Transport Canada. So how were these uh, observations made? Uh, a lot of these come from pilots. Uh, wow. Transport Canada regularly logs uh, incident reports from uh, pilots, both commercial and military, uh, who have uh, seen unusual things in the sky, and they range from, you know, uh, fairly standard uh, lights in the sky to uh, things that are flying off the wingtips of some planes that pilots ask tra air traffic control about, and air traffic control says, yeah, no, there's nothing there. So, uh, you know, they range, uh, you know, quite the waterfront. Uh, but as I say, a lot of these had already been made public. Uh, but the fact that when Vice uh, filed an access information request for Uf UFOs and UIP, uh, this list, first of all, of 500 cases from the past 15 years or 20 years or so, uh, was produced, but also uh, some actual reports from Transport Canada and Nav Canada that document what pilots, military pilots, and the average citizens have been seeing. Okay, this is the interesting one to me when you have military records or sightings by military pilots, because that's a bit different from, you know, someone who maybe thinks they saw something in their backyard one night. Like when you've got, like in the United States, I watched the 60 Minutes report, as I'm certain you did. Um, with you had some Navy pilots, U.S. Navy pilots going public on 60 Minutes to, to discuss the, the the strange stuff that they have seen that's unexplained, and they did not seem crazy. They did not seem like crackpots. It, it, do you think this is being taken more seriously now, both in America and and in Canada as well? Well, I would hope it's being taken a little more seriously in Canada. I mean, I have um, many hundreds of cases uh, from Canada over just the, the past 20 years alone. Many of them from uh, military personnel, uh, and the United States seems to be taking it seriously enough that uh, they've uh, ordered a, a task force uh, through Congress to take a look at this and issue reports every 90 days. And one would think that if military pilots, especially those with, let's say, between five and 10,000 flying hours of experience, are saying that they had something fly by their plane and fly circles around it and then take off again, and they would say it's not a, a you know another plane or a helicopter or a drone or anything, 
you'd have to tend to take those things seriously. And when we have cases like that happening in Canada, too, uh, I believe the Canadian government is taking it seriously. Yeah. Speaking of Chris Rutkowski, he's one of Canada's top researchers in UFO sightings in Canada. We're talking about some recently disclosed uh, government records on this. Hey, hey, Chris, like one of the things that I've heard some members of the U.S. Congress say on this issue is that they're convinced some people are convinced that maybe there's there is something out there. Maybe it's not aliens. Okay, but maybe if you have sustained sightings of something flying over uh, U.S. military ships or Navy ships, could it be some sort of new unknown observation system by a, by a foreign hostile government? Is, is there any indication of that, that that might be the explanation for some of these sightings? Well, that possibility has, in fact, been raised and is a possibility just because the U.S. Navy doesn't... Uh, know what something was doesn't mean that it's not something from the air force or uh even somebody else's air force one would think though if if there was another air force in, from another country involved that uh you know we'd have a little more evidence we'd have a little more data uh and i think that's what the purpose of this task force is to try and find out what's going on uh and as a matter of fact these things are being uh, issues uh, or these things are being seen uh, what are their ufos or drones or something else uh, remains to be uh, investigated. Uh, you know, even just last week, uh, a member of parliament uh, here in Canada uh, asked the Canadian government itself to take a look at unidentified aerial phenomena reports here in Canada and to issue a report. So it's both sides of the of the border now. Hey, Chris, you know, oftentimes when you talk about this subject, people, <laughs> people will think this is just crazy, wacko stuff. I mean, you don't sound like a like a crazy person. I know you're a scientist. You work at the University of Manitoba. How did you get into this as a, as a researcher on this and sort of taking it seriously? Well, I uh, uh, my background is in astronomy and also education. I have degrees uh, in those fields, and uh, I uh, had been in Ottawa working uh, uh, on some projects, and I was at the National Research Council. And, uh, you know, they were investigating UFOs for many, many years. Canada has a record of investigating UFOs and issuing reports about uh, what was being seen by Canadians uh, for many years, uh, much longer before the Canadian, uh, before the American government uh, took notice just a few years ago, apparently. Um, and uh, it's the type of thing where, you know, there, it, it does have a certain um, ha-ha factor to it, I suppose, except yeah. that, you know, when you have pilots, commercial pilots and uh, military pilots seeing objects in the sky, uh, in, you know, in their flight paths, uh, and some in some cases, uh, there was a case here in Canada just about five years ago, where pilots had to take evasive maneuvers uh, on their airline uh, flight with passengers on board uh, that caused some injuries as they took evasive maneuvers because there was something in the, the flight path of their aircraft. So when you have things like that, you have to take uh, a little more notice, and it's... Uh, Certainly not amusing when, uh, you know, there are the lives of hundreds of uh, Canadians on board aircraft uh, that are in danger by these types of things. Yeah, for sure. Chris, thanks for coming on today to talk about it. Interesting stuff. Appreciate it. No problem. Thanks.